You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly review of what's been happening in the news in Sweden. I'm your host, Paul Amahani. And today we're going to talk about people fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how prepared Sweden is to help them. We'll also discuss what listeners think about Swedish for Immigrants classes and we'll get tips on learning Swedish from our guests. And finally, we'll be asking if there is such a thing as a typical Swede. And to discuss all this, we'll hear from David Crouch, who wrote an article for us this week on the subject of typical Swedes. And I'm also joined by the local Swedens, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. I'm going to turn to you first, James, and ask about what the situation is like now for Ukrainians fleeing to Sweden from the war. First of all, do we know how many have already arrived? It's hard to tell, really, because um, what we know is that by last Friday, um, 5,200 people had registered. But the figure is likely much, much higher than that. Um, there have been long queues outside the um, Swedish Migration Agency's offices in Solna, in Stockholm. Um, the head of the migration agency estimated that about 4,000 people were coming today. Now, many of those, for many of those people, the first thing they do is not to go to the authorities and register. They mm. they try and find homes through, you know, civil society or through or you know somewhere to stay. And now, what they're saying is that they expect up to. 200. They've given a very specific figure, in fact, 212,000. I don't okay. know how exactly how they've, how they've arrived at that figure, but up to 212,000 people expected over the, ne- over the next few months, although they say their best guess is perhaps somewhere around, and again, very specific figure, 76,000. Um, and that's a d- dramatic jump over the last couple of weeks in, well, it's, in what they estimated. It's an enormous jump over what in what they estimated, but you know the brutality of of, of the Russian shelling of, of civilians has um, has obviously changed the picture enormously. And you know we're, we're talking about the UNHCR estimating that uh, four million people could be forced to flee Ukraine in total. Uh, so those people will be coming to all sorts of parts of Europe, including Sweden. Um, but obviously, you know, primarily right now that they're, they're congregating in the in the in the countries on the borders of Ukraine um, on the direct borders of Ukraine so that's we're talking Poland in particular mm. um, but but also other countries other countries there and more than more than three million people have already fled so it may be that even that is a conservative it's, estimate it's possible that even that figure of four million is going to be revised upwards yes and in, for, for Sweden how prepared is it um, where are all these people going to stay in a, in a sense, Sweden is is well prepared in the sense that it had this uh, uh, it had this huge number of um, people. One hundred sixty three thousand people came to Sweden in 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 two thousand fifteen. 
um, many of them from Syria, but also from from other parts of the world, from from from, from Africa and elsewhere. So Sweden does have a, a you know recent sort of muscle memory of ta- of receiving a large number of refugees. What the government is now doing is trying to reactivate those uh, procedures that they had before, they, they, and, they, and, they, and they've they've put they've put an appeal out to um, the county administrative boards, as the government's representatives in different counties, to find te- temporary refugee shelters. But we're talking at this stage of you know very very basic. Uh, shelter and, and, and warmth. We're talking sport halls, um, warehouses and other places, as well as, uh, to the extent possible, uh, sort of hotels and other places that, that, that have previously been used as, 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 as reception centres for, for refugees. But then we're also seeing civil society taking a really big role. We're seeing a lot of people um, offering space in their own homes to re- Ukrainian refugees. We're seeing um, groups on Facebook uh, where, um, where people are trying to connect refugees with um, with 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 uh, Swedish people who've got a spare room and and are, and are willing to take people on. I've had emails just in the past few days from people asking if they can if they can open their homes. How do they do that? Is there a is there a system for doing this? Yeah, and right now there isn't much of a system for doing it. The government hasn't um, says says it hasn't yet got a system um, in place for doing that, you know, officially. And in fact, the government has uh, the um, interior minister Anders Schigemann warned the other day that. Uh, People should think carefully before taking in refugees because this is uh, this this could be a very very much a long term um, commitment and um, people shouldn't be prepared to take refugees unless they are willing to to make that long term commitment. So um, so the government is well, it's not 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 actively discouraging it. It is at least asking people to think very carefully before they before they go ahead and do that. Back in 2015, there were all these sort of slightly anarchist organisations that came in and were sort of grabbing all the refugees as they came in at the station in Malmo, taking them off into uh, special places in, in and then sending them all over the country. And five years later, a lot of those people couldn't get citizenship because they hadn't been registered in the right way. And I don't know to what extent that's a concern this time around, but a, a, a lot of the well-meaning things that voluntary organisations did actually ended up harming the refugees who were coming into the country. I think that's probably part of the thinking. I think, you know, the government is, you, you can see from the way the government's reacting that they're very keen to learn the lessons of 2015. I think one of the things that we saw in 2015 at the very early stages of the of the refugee crisis was an enormous sort of opening of hearts in Sweden, people people going out on the street saying, you know, refugees welcome, welcome them into their homes. And then there was a, there was a, there was a really big political backlash with, you know, the Sweden Democrats benefiting enormously, for example, from um, from, from from what turned out to be people thinking that the, that the state had kind of lost control over the situation. I think what the government is very keen to do this time is to say, look, we're going to we're going to welcome refugees in a structured and ordered way, um, and we're not going to let it get or let, let let it be perceived that we've that we've let it get out of control. So so what we're seeing now is the government already has um, introduced border is ID checks on the border with Denmark across uh, the bridge between Sweden and Denmark to to just send that message, I think, more than anything else, that we, we know who's coming into the country and we have a level of control. Do you think the fact that it's an um, election year um, makes a difference in how the government is approaching this? A lot of their rhetoric is very consistent with what they've been saying over, over, over many years. If you, well, the, One of the other things that they're saying, that they're stressing particularly, is that Sweden is willing to take refugees but it doesn't want to be take a disproportionate number compared to the rest of Europe. And certainly in, in the 2015 crisis, Sweden did take a disproportionate number of refugees compared to the rest of Europe. Per capita, it took more refugees, I think, than any other country in Europe, More than many more than even Germany, which, who, which numerically took the most, but it's a much bigger country in terms of population. So what they're saying is, 
yes, we'll do our bit, but we're not going to do everyone else's bit as well. And I think, you know, by stressing that now, they're trying to head off any criticism that comes further down the line that Sweden has taken too many refugees. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting that you asked about the election year, because I felt there was a very definite shift. Like when, when, when it first became apparent that there would be this wave of Ukrainian refugees, the government was initially very cautious and was saying, you know, well, we definitely don't want to take more than our share. And we, we think we'll only take a few thousand. And, and then and then I think they saw how public opinion and even the opinion of the Sweden Democrats was coming behind except being as generous as possible. And then they opened their do- the doors completely. So I think it, the election year maybe conditioned the initial response. But then when they saw where public opinion lay, I felt there was a definite shift in, in the government's approach. I don't know if anyone agrees with me. Definitely. One of the things I've seen a lot on on um, social media internationally is people comparing the the reception of European refugees compared to, say, Syrian refugees in in 2015, and saying that you know it's it's telling how much more welcoming uh, we are this time. Do you think there's anything to that? I, I think that absolutely is, and um, and I think a lot of the, the population in Sweden, but also in, in other parts of Europe, are, are definitely a lot more comfortable receiving a lot of refugees from that seem culturally similar and perhaps look the same. But to, to, I think in the Swedish media, there's been a, a lot of criticism of the Sweden Democrats. They're going, well, you know, you'll fool for people from Syria, but you're not fool from people from Ukraine, you know, a, 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 and trying to push them to say, well, the difference is the colour of their skin, more or less, and, and, and to sort of use it to underline the sort of racist elements in the Swedish Democrat uh, politics. But to be fair to them, it is, as, as James said earlier, it is what they've always maintained. In a way, they're being true to their word. They've said, well, if, if there was a crisis on our doorstep with a culturally similar people, we would accept them. And we think that that's how it, how it should work in the world, that refugees should go to the neighbouring countries. You know, they, they could have been inconsistent and said, well, actually, perhaps we don't want, you know, 50,000 Ukrainian refugees. So I think it's, in a way, it's to their credit that they've stuck to the policy that they have always outlined and used as an argument when rejecting refugees from other com- from, from other countries. As, as, as we were saying earlier, you know, the fact that people were very welcoming to refugees from other parts of the world, from further afield, in the in the initial stages of the previous refugee crisis, is worth remembering. And and, and we and we do have to see how people's, um, you know, if, if a very large number of Ukrainians do come to Sweden and, you know, and it causes, you know, practical issues, We'll we'll have to see how how strong Sweden's hospitality remains. It, it could it could it could it could well be maintained at this at, at this level, but we'll have to wait and see because there were very similar scenes in 20, at the beginning of twenty fifteen. This show is made possible by members of the local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism, and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, I'd urge you to check out our excellent introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. We're going to move on to a different topic now. And in a way, maybe it's uh, slightly connected in that a lot of the Ukrainians who are coming to Sweden now will need to learn Swedish. 
Uh, we're going to talk about Swedish for immigrants or SFE as the classes are generally referred to in Swedish. And, and we asked you in a poll this week to give us your impressions of the free classes. At the time of recording this, we had 346 responses. What we asked was, do you think Swedish for immigrants classes are any good? It was a very sort of blunt question. And 52% said no, 44% said yes. And we had uh, another few who said that they didn't have an opinion. Uh, Becky, can you tell us what reasons people gave for their answers? A lot of the people that were positive were saying, oh, well, language is culture. If you learn the language, you learn the culture. You can become part of society. You can be active in society. Um, and a lot of people saying, oh, well, I had this great teacher in this place where I did SFE and, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, it was it was well matched to the people that were in the classes. And then a lot of people saying no were saying it was too intense. They started with grammar when people didn't know the were enough words of Swedish. And... Um, yeah, a lot of people that had like specific complaints about a specific teacher, which I think we can't really extrapolate to mean SFE overall. I mean, every kind of every kind of language class is dependent on even every kind of class in general. Like you're always going to find a subject more interesting if your teacher is invested. But I mean, the people that kind of said things generally about the structure of SFE said that so the classes are taught in Swedish because the idea is people all have a different kind of mother tongue. So if you're teaching Swedish, then everyone's starting from the same level. But then that also means that you're trying to explain difficult grammar terms and people don't even know the basics of the words you're using to explain them, um, which obviously can be a bit of an issue. So I think that, that's, a, that's a clear kind of, kind of structural problem that maybe should be changed. I think it's worth mentioning that when people qualify for SFE, there are, there are actually a lot of different options that are worth exploring. And I think, you know, just looking at the responses to the poll, it seems like a lot of people just um, took the, the standard classes. And when you when you go to the SFE website, that's sort of what jumps out at you. But actually, there are a lot of different options that are worth exploring. I've just been looking at what's on offer in Stockholm, for example, where there are the regular SFE classes that most people have been talking about. But there's also Swedish for trained professionals, which is called SFX. And these are tailored classes that can be for their classes for bakers, bus drivers, entrepreneurs, craftsmen, engineers and architects, truckers, medical staff, teachers, economists, lawyers, sociologists and programmers. A whole range of options available for people who are new to Sweden and uh, want to get up to speed on the terminology in their particular line of work. And there's also an intensive Swedish option, which is a distance learning course for people who want to learn the language fast. And there are special classes for people on parental leave. And there's also adapted learning SFE, which caters for people with neuropsychiatric disabilities. So it's really worth looking closely at what your municipality offers before diving in. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people. Well, there was at least I think there were some people in our poll as well who specifically said, oh, I did this course for professionals or I did this intensive distance learning ones. And they seem to be pretty happy about what had happened. I think it's definitely crucial that if you can, you choose something that's tailored towards your level. Because if you're coming from a background when you've studied languages before, you understand tenses, you understand, you've got like a basic understanding of grammar. You don't want to be sitting in a class where they're teaching you what a noun is. You also, Becky, wrote a story this week about how EU citizens are being denied access to SFE classes by some municipalities if they don't have a Swedish personal identification number. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so this was actually um, a couple of people separately emailed us about this story because they were in different parts of the country saying that they'd been having issues with this. 
and it's def- it's not all municipalities. I feel like I should underline that, but um, it's definitely. I think we found four or five just on a quick search that are saying, "Oh, well, you need a perso- a personal number or a coordination number." Which is um, a coordination number can be given to people who maybe aren't going to be here for a year or don't qualify for a personal number, but they need to pay tax or something, so they get given a coordination number. I actually spoke to the Swedish Schools Agency about this, and they specifically said the right to studying SFE for EU citizens is not linked to if you have a personal number or not. So in theory, if you're an EU citizen who is living in Sweden, uh, the difficulty there is proving what what is living in Sweden if you don't have a personal number, then you should be able to study SFI. And there's people that aren't allowed to do that because they don't have a, perso- a personal number or a, or a um, coordination number. And I mean, this happened to me when I moved to Sweden. I... Um, I had a bit of a confusing situation when I moved to Sweden. I was still an EU citizen because this was before Brexit, but I just finished my master's in Copenhagen. I didn't have a job lined up in Sweden. I was pregnant, so I couldn't get health insurance. So I didn't really fit any of the tax agency's requirements to getting a personal number. So I had to go through the migration agency and get a residence permit, which meant that I had a nine-month wait before I was registered in Sweden. So I thought, okay, well, I have nine months. I can't work. I'm going to have a baby soon. I might as well try and learn SFE. And then I emailed and was told, okay, well, do you have a coordination number? No, I don't. What do I do? I was kind of stuck in this situation of, well, I've got nine months, I can't work, I can't do anything, but I can't study Swedish either. And then by the time I actually got registered, I'd learned my Swedish was so good that they said that I shouldn't do it. I I couldn't study SFE because, yeah, I already spoke Swedish. So it's kind of, I've been through this experience myself, and it's it's really annoying. Of course, there there are other categories of people um, in Sweden who aren't allowed to study SFE. And the the most recent one is um, Ukrainian people coming under the Temporary Protection Directive. They are not permitted to study SFE. It's it's not available to them either. It's all linked to whether you have the right to education in Sweden. And then obviously, the right to education means you can university everything. So SFE is kind of lumped into that category. But I thought it was interesting. I mean, obviously, most Ukrainians, for example, want to go home as soon as possible. So perhaps their their motivation to learn Swedish um, is not going to be that high. But I mean, I I guess the longer this, the longer the war goes on, if the war does go on longer than than people hope, there will be pressure to allow Ukrainians as well to, um, to, to go to SFE. I actually didn't go to SFE. And I know you mentioned that you didn't either, Becky, but you are, uh, you have a linguistic background. What advice would you give people just starting to learn Swedish? Um, again, my situation was a bit weird because I already spoke Danish. Danish and Swedish are very similar. So it was just a story of kind of learn what words are different and learn how to pronounce things differently. But I think in terms of learning a language in general, immersion is the best thing you can do. Speak Swedish as much as you can. If you have any friends that speak Swedish, even if they're not Swedes, try and speak Swedish with them. Listen to the Swedish radio, listen to Swedish music, put Swedish subtitles on your Netflix, watch as much as you can on SVT, like just try and hear it as much as you can. And then even if you don't understand the words, your brain will start recognising the language a bit more and it will just make it so much easier. I think another tip I would give is start speaking Start speaking before you're ready, before you think you're ready. Don't sort of... There's a tendency that people people want to sort of save it up and then at some point in the future, they'll they'll, they'll take the brave step and try a conversation. No, just just go in there and, 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 and give it a go. I mean, do you have any advice? Because I've always found it's, it's, it's very hard to keep pushing, to keep the conversations you have in Swedish, because you have to get to quite a high level before Swedish is an easier language to speak in. You know, the, 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 the conversation will always be easier if it switches to English. So there's always this sort of pressure to kind of flip to English. And, and Swedes you meet are always, always kind of waiting to do that. 
Does anyone have any sort of advice on how to, besides just being very obstinate? I mean, I, I kind of had the, the opposite problem <clears throat> or problem, the opposite situation with my, uh, my husband's friends in particular. Everyone was like, oh, wow, you're English. We can speak English with you. So exciting. I can practice my English. And then, you know, after a few times you've met up, people started realizing, oh, you know, I can actually kind of express myself better in Swedish. People didn't, like, if we were in a group of people, everyone didn't want to speak English just because of me. So it kind of naturally switched over to Swedish anyway. And we had a period where I would speak English and then people reply to me in Swedish because then we were all speaking our native languages. But I think people think it's really, uh, Swedes think it's really interesting to speak English and practice their English in the beginning. But once you start getting into difficult discussions where people feel like, oh, well, I can't really express myself how I want to, then they're kind of more more keen to speak Swedish. Although that's when it gets difficult for you as a, as a, as a non-native Swedish speaker. I just keep on speaking Swedish to them. Just you, you can speak you can speak to English and me if you want. I'm going to reply in Swedish. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. I think when I when I moved to Sweden first, uh, I already had some Swedish friends, and they were kind of the reason I moved here. And they knew that I was interested in in learning languages because we had studied together in France actually. And I I just said to them, I just want to speak Swedish. Don't speak any English to me. And I just refused to speak English, and they got on board with that immediately. I can still actually remember the, the the very first words of Swedish I learned. I was having an argument with my friend Eric about music, and he said, "Paul, there's one thing you're going to have to know." He said, "Smaken is some bakken, dealad." It's like taste. Taste is like buttocks divided. And I think in in twenty three years in Sweden, I don't think I've ever heard it used in a conversation, but it has really stuck with me. And Eric, Eric still has terrible taste in music. <laughs> I think also just try and find your niche. What is it that interests you? Do you really love baking? Go and watch the Swedish version of the Great British Bake Off. Do you really love music? Find some Swedish music. Are you obsessed with Eurovision? Go and listen to all of the Swedish mellow songs you can find. Like. Find your niche, find the thing that interests you yeah. and then do that in Swedish. I think that's yeah. exactly right. I remember, like, I love this um, Swedish band, Bob Hund, and I, b- I bought their records. One of my friends introduced me to them and I thought, this is fantastic. This is exactly the kind of music I want to listen to. And I, I bought one of their one of their CDs and just took out the little booklet and learned, like, read read all the lyrics and learned them all. I, can, I still know all the yeah. lyrics from that record off by heart. I showed Bob Hund to my brother and he was asking me for, uh, oh, Becky, what does this mean? Can you translate this for me? What does that mean in Swedish? What are they singing about here? Yeah, and it's quite complicated, poetic, lyrical Swedish. Very hard to translate. <laughs> it is, mm. yeah. It was a really good introduction to the nuances of the language. I think if you come when you're nearly 40, as I did, it's a very different experience. And especially I came as we were having children. So immediately you're sort of um, well, uh, um, in, a, in a sort of yeah. group. I found a group of people who had were half Swedish and half English. And my wife unfortunately went to international schools in Africa so she's absolutely completely fluent in English so it's actually been more difficult and it's only been once we bought a summer house in the countryside where no one can speak English that that Mm. my Swedish has actually managed to catch up it's taken me a long time I was in my mid-twenties and you know definitely your your, your brain is definitely more receptive to language when you're in your mid-twenties my my brain is much much sort of much more um it's much slower, isn't much it? Much slower. <laughs> you see, I can't even find words. Um, yeah, but it's but it but it's definitely true that you know your your, your brain is a sponge in your mid twenties to to well to a greater extent than it is in your in, in your mid forties. 
definitely. I was I was in my mid twenties as well. And one thing I would say, and this is sort of touching on um, what Becky was talking about earlier, and Richard about how, like, at a certain level, it becomes really difficult to stay involved in complicated conversations. And I think that can be quite isolating. I found that in the first in the first year or two, you know, I picked up Swedish quite quickly. But once once a conversation got complicated, I was a little bit lost. And I sort of forced myself to only speak Swedish, so I didn't really have any any fallback or any safety net. And I found that I was I was a little bit isolated from from the rest of society in a way. So in retrospect, I didn't take any SFE classes, but I wish that I had, um, just to have you know just to meet people in a similar situation. So I think if I if I was to give any advice, I would say don't don't try to do it on all on your own because there are resources available. Yeah, and I think that's been in. That's definitely been an issue for me moving here. I moved here in October 2019, so that's just before the pandemic. And then I also had a baby in March 2020, which did not help on the kind of isolation level. But luckily, my husband's family are Swedish and they were the people I was seeing the most. So I was like, OK, well, I'm going to stop speaking English to you. I'm going to, For a brief period, I spoke Danish as well, but that didn't go very well because not a lot of Swedes understand Danish. So um, I think they were relieved when they're like, oh, great, she's going to try speaking Swedish and not Danish. Finally, I don't have to try and understand Danish. And that definitely helped, even though there weren't a lot of people I could kind of network with. And I still don't really know that many immigrants in Sweden because I was kind of, it was a pandemic when I moved here. But definitely just find people to talk to, try and, yeah, find people that are going through the same thing as you. Oh, definitely. So important. I'm, I, I used to hang out with quite, I still do hang out with I've got lots of Swedish friends, but I do have my group of um, of immigrant friends, and it's just a massive relief to talk to people who, who who have the same experiences, who are going through the same things, who have gone through the same things, who are going through the same things now that you went through twenty years ago. It, you need to sort of be reminded that you're not alone in this. And, and also, you're you're all kind of outsiders inside Sweden, so you can kind of share those fun stories of, oh, I was trying to call this agency today, but they're only open for one hour a week. Yeah. Like all these ridiculously <laughs> Swedish things, which I guess kind of brings us on to the next topic, Paul. For some people, there is that experience that you, operating in a second language, you just can't be your full self. Yeah, one of my Swedish friends told me I was sassy in Swedish, which put me off speaking Swedish for ages. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be this kind of sassy person. I just want to speak Swedish. So I, I felt really nervous speaking <laughs> for ages. <laughs> It's like my husband, he, he worked as an electrician in Denmark. So when he speaks Danish, he sounds like a harbour worker from Amar. And then when he speaks Swedish, he's from he's from Skånefalsterbol, which is where all the rich Stockholmers have their have their houses. So he's this very like middle class posh boy. And then he speaks Danish and it's just great. It's great listening to these two completely different people in the same person. This podcast is free to listen to, but if you like what you hear and are not yet a member of the local, please consider joining. By subscribing, you get the latest news from Sweden that impacts you, essential practical information and advice on life in Sweden, and unrestricted access to all editions of The Local. Please check out our membership offer at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer to find out more. We're going to talk now about typical Swedes. David Crouch is a senior lecturer in journalism at Gothenburg University and the author of a book about Sweden called Almost Perfect. This week, he wrote an article for The Local about whether the typical Swede really exists. He was going to come on the show today. Unfortunately, he couldn't make it, but I spoke to him a little bit earlier to find out what he thinks. And you can read his full article on The Local. Let's hear now some of what he had to say about how Sweden plays on stereotypes when it brands itself. It is of this 
I think it's building on the stereotypes that we already have. I, I think that they recognise that there, there is um, a, a, a stereotype about Sweden that exists already, and they're looking to, in some ways, strengthen that and take it forward. So it is this kind of laid-back, uh, sophisticated, low-key, um, kind of design-obsessed, um, uh, happy, prosperous... Uh, the sorts of, of, of images and, uh, and values. And I can see why they do it, but I also feel a little bit disappointed that they're not more um, inventive and they're not responding to the way in which Sweden is changing in, in, in a more creative way uh, to present a rather more dynamic and uh, perhaps more challenging image uh, of Sweden, but which is at the same time, uh, I think, m would be more attractive and would speak to more people because that, that experience is so much more common to so many of us. I, I think we, the image that's presented of Sweden is, is kind of different. There they are, this perfect sort of Nordic um, uh, little nation in the, in, in the far north. And in fact, Sweden has so much in common with so many other uh, European uh, European nations and has uh, some wonderful things that we can uh, be inspired by and learn from um, and that are missing from the branding that uh, that official Sweden is so keen to perpetuate at the moment. Okay, that was David Crouch talking about the typical Swede and he seems to come down on the side of there really being no such thing. Richard, where do you stand on this? Um, I disagree, but I understand where he's coming from in that clearly if we, you just have to walk outside this studio and walk through the streets of Malmo and you realise that it's an incredibly diverse city with people from all over the place who have developed their own ways of living in this country and, and started their own sort of version of Swedishness. You know, they're, they're impacted by Swedishness. They speak Swedish to their friends but they don't have the sort of tradition, what the, a Swedish culture as we might think of it. On the other hand, if you live here, you realise quite soon, if you're coming from the UK, that there is a Swedish culture which is not in the branding, which, which you don't hear about, which is about self-restraint and about not really pushing the boat out, not doing anything particularly extravagant, holding back. And that, and that isn't shared, actually, by the... By, uh, uh, so so I, while I agree that... I, I think there is a typical Swede, but I agree with him that a lot of people living in Sweden don't qualify under that under that moniker. You know, most people living in Sweden aren't typical Swedes, but I do think there is such a thing as a typical Swede. I think you kind of touch on the law of Janta. I, mean, I know in, in Danish it's called Janta law, and it's this kind of idea that you're not you shouldn't think you're better than other people. You shouldn't kind of brag about how great you are. Which we have in the UK as well. I yeah, mean, but it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a nice special name in the UK. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sort of tall poppy syndrome, or not being too up yourself. Yeah, or not exactly. Being too... just, you don't go around telling everyone how great you are, and I think that's a very Swedish. I think I think there's definitely 
Is it a Swedish thing? I think, it, I think in Sweden it's stronger and, and it's yeah. policed in a different way. So uh, my, my sense is that in the UK it's policed by humour. You, 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 you sort of take the mickey out of people who are a bit, you know, wearing some sort of extravagant suit or driving a kind of Swiss sports car or, or having too lavish a party. Whereas in Sweden you sort of withhold approval. You just sort of don't mention it. And, yeah, yeah. and they sit there going, look, I've got a Lamborghini. And the yeah. Swedes just go, oh, your car, does that use a little bit too much petrol perhaps you know or something like that and you just they just kind of remove all your thunder <laughs> not very good for the environment is it <laughs> he does say that there's that, that um swedes are united um around one particular thing likes herring i think that's that's a stereotype that i find all over the place um and is one of the few stereotypes that's actually true they really do like the herring <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i feel like there's definitely it's like every country is there a typical brit you have all these stereotypes it's not like we walk around it's not like everybody gets a red a red london bus to work every day wearing a little top hat and drinking a cup of tea and holding a cane like we don't do that we don't all have the queen on speed dial but that doesn't mean that there's no typical brit it just means that there's definitely some things especially if brits are abroad that you kind of bond over i've written lots of articles for for Emma about sort of aspects of Swedishness, like how a Sturelsa meeting works or how people hold back in weddings. And 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 then I went back and I read this book, Watching the English by Kate Fox. I don't know if you've read it. It's a great, very culturalist book on Englishness about how humour works, how pubs work. And I realised that almost everything I've written for the local about Swedishness is kind of the obverse of what exists in in, in Englishness. It, it, and it's the way that you're supposed to use humour in England all the time. Uh, whereas, so, so you couldn't have a Sturlsa meeting that is as serious as, as a Swedish one. You meet people from your building and they go, well, the first point on the, on the agenda is this. And, and to an Englishman, it just seems crazy. I mean, this is, you're supposed to be our friends and we're having this extremely serious conversation. It, it feels like you're in, in, in your sort of county council and it just feels absurdly formal for the setting i was in a i was in one of these um one of these board meetings uh with my housing association a few years ago they were talking about how the the iron some of the iron girders in in the building um were were becoming a little bit substandard (laughs) and a norwegian guy who lived who lived in the building said that's because you exported all your good iron to the germans And I, I, I just burst out laughing, and there was, you know, I was the only one. <laughs> and he, he moved out shortly afterwards. I mean, there's a brilliant bit in in the Canal School books where he has a, he goes out to a sort of his his house in Scorner, and they have like a big a piss up with with sort of local arty people and he has this it ends with this kind of shouting argument about something academic and he goes to bed thinking he had a great night yeah we were talking about Proust or whatever and in the morning all of the Swedes are just horrified that there's been some sort of breakdown that there's been a, a dispute a and a, a conflict which is a ter- this terrible thing and, and I think that sort of underlines how even the Norwegians have yeah this different approach yeah. and but obviously this is like like we've been saying this is this is extremely broad brushstrokes and obviously you can meet Swedes who who love conflict and 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 are completely extravagant and it's a tendency rather than something that describes everyone who lives in the country 
If you've been enjoying the show and are not yet a member, please consider supporting The Local's independent journalism by heading over to thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer, where a subscription costs just 10 kroner for the first month. Uh, thanks, everybody. We have just about reached the end of this week's show. Thanks to David Crouch, Becky Waterton, James Savage and Richard Orange. And thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus. Until next time, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.